I'm Father Mitch Packwell, welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God, sacred Scripture, through the lens of the tradition that comes to us from Jesus through the apostles and their disciples. And we also take a look at Scripture in order to learn more about how to use the Bible in our own personal prayer and meditation. That'll be what we do today. Now, we'd love to have you be part of the program. You can do that, just like these folks here, mostly from Louisiana, who are in our studio audience, and we'd always love to have you be part of it. Or you can call in a question to the live program, which is 2 o'clock Eastern Time on Tuesdays. And the phone number in North America is one 800-221-9460. Or if you're outside North America, you can still call, but you need to call country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. You can also send us your questions and comments by email writing to scriptureandtradition at EWTN.com. Or you can also follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. So we've been taking a look at the failures of faith among the apostles. And we especially were talking last week about their own failure of faith in regard to our Lord's teaching on the Eucharist and how this lack of faith would eventually affect their abandonment of Jesus. We'll also talk about how our Lord Jesus dealt with this, knowing all of it in advance, even knowing what Judas Iscariot himself would do. Now, if you recall, last week I began began talking about John chapter 6 and our Lord's teaching about the Eucharist, not so much focusing on the content about the Eucharist. We did that when we covered my book, uh, The Eucharist, a Bible study, but focusing on the reaction of the apostles and how our Lord, uh, St. John the Apostle, did not describe the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper. It's just not there. But what he does do is give a very deep teaching on the meaning of the Eucharist and the importance of faith in regard to the Eucharist and how crucial it is. Now, we are still going through my book called Wheat and Tares. Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. And you can get that at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com where it is item number 81098. 81098. So, we are now taking a look at John chapter 6, verses 64 to 65. This is when our Lord said to the disciples, 
But there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was that should betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, there's a couple things going on here, very important. First, this is recognition that faith is a gift from God. It's a grace that comes to us from God. That is why the church calls faith along with hope and with love, charity, a theological virtue. What that means to be a theological virtue is that it is God who gives us the grace to have faith, to have hope, and to have love. It's not something that we can just muster on our own. No, faith is very much a gift. And that explains our Lord's comment that no one comes to me unless the Father gives it to him. It shows that we must have the gift of faith. Now, on our part, we have to say yes to that gift of faith. We have to, it's a gift from God, and we can refuse it or we can accept it. We can say, no, I'll do it my own way. I'm going to stick with Frank Sinatra. I'm going to do it my way instead of Jesus Christ. For myself, I would stick with Jesus. You know, that would be my own suggestion. And it's also important here to note, this is the first time in the Gospel of John that it mentions that Jesus knew who was going to betray him. And it's important that he mentions it at this point about teaching in regard to the Eucharist because it's going to be at the Last Supper, at the first Eucharist, that Judas will betray Jesus. But he already knew, while he's teaching about the Eucharist, he knew who this was that was going to betray him and that the Eucharist is absolutely essential for determining whether we stay faithful to Christ or not. So that's something, and um, we'll see more about that in uh, the next chapter, in fact, of the book. Then we turn to John chapter 6, verse 66. After this, after our Lord calls out the apostles, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. That his teaching on the Eucharist drives a wedge. And some of them say, we, this is too much. And we, they don't accept it. And we've seen that very often in the history of the church. And it's not only something that shows up in the division between the denominations and churches and such, but it's also true among many Catholics. You know, back when I was a kid in, in the 1950s, 
85% of Catholics came to Sunday Mass. Now it's less than 30%. And a lot of people think, well, you know, yeah, it's not a bad day. Maybe I will go to church, but now I'll sleep in. You know, it, it's, it, it's all up to them instead of up to following our Lord. So this is something that's kind of important. And this is something that is especially important because our Lord had just said that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. That accepting this teaching and receiving Jesus in the Eucharist is what Jesus says is necessary. It's among a number of elements of Christian life and faith that he considers necessary. Not, well, if you feel like it, you can sort of take the Eucharist, you can see my body and blood. No, he says it's necessary. And he wants to walk away. And this, this happens to a lot of folks. Then in verse 67, you know, do we see, hey, 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 guys, don't, don't go away. I, I was just talking about a symbol. It's, it's, no, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. He doesn't say that, does he? He says to the 12 apostles in verse 67, will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So he doesn't say, look, I can explain this away. It'll be something more palatable. I'll put it in some other way. No, he doesn't do that. He lays his teaching out about the Eucharist. And we've had... Uh, back in the 60s, there was a certain uh, fad. I don't know how much it's still around, but there was a fad among a few Catholic theologians who rejected the church's teaching on transubstantiation, which means that the bread truly becomes the body of Christ, the wine truly becomes the blood of Christ. They were rejecting that. And they were saying, well, what really is happening is transignification. In other words, the significance of the bread becomes the significance of Christ's body. And significance of the, or the meaning of the wine becomes Christ's blood. Uh, but Pope St. Paul VI strongly and clearly rejected that, said that's false teaching. It is rather that this is the body and blood of Christ and not just a change of meaning. The, the church cannot water that down in any legitimate way. Okay? So he um, gives the apostles that choice and they say, they, I don't think they fully understand Jesus. I would warrant that they don't. But they say that, you know, two things. You have the words of eternal life. That's what Jesus sees is at stake. How will you spend all of eternity? In heaven with God or not? In heaven with God or in hell with hatred? This is, this is the, the absolute choice 
Everybody has to make, and Jesus summons us to that. So Peter recognizes that, and he also recognizes, as he said at Caesarea Philippi, that you are the holy one of God. Remember how he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here he recognizes him as the holy one of God. And so that's a very important uh, response by Peter. And look at how our Lord answers them, though, and said, did I not choose you the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. So again, we see a second mention of the betrayer. And he's going to be one of the twelve. In fact, we'll see later on that the betrayal will take place on Holy Thursday. We know that. And that Judas, the betrayer, is not only one of the twelve disciples, he's one of the twelve first bishops. He was ordained. He did the betrayal right after his ordination in his first Holy Communion. And this is a significant element about him that sometimes we forget, but that's the reality. Now, it's important to see that that point and a number of other points are parallels to Holy Thursday. If you remember that Holy Thursday happened at the Jewish Passover, right? Well, if you take a look at John chapter 6, verse 4, you see that this whole teaching of Jesus happens right at the second Passover in the gospel. The first Passover was at the wedding feast of Cana. That was right before the first Passover mentioned in John. The second Passover is here. And the third one is at the Last Supper. By the way, it's good to remember. At the first Passover, he changes water into wine. Second Passover, he multiplies loaves and fish and teaches about the Eucharist. Third Passover, he changes bread and wine into his body and blood. That's an important part of the background here. We also see that uh, while he walks on water in John chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, at the Last Supper... He washes the disciples' feet. That's a parallel. And another parallel is that he gives this long teaching about the importance of faith and the Eucharist. Both of those are what he teaches about in John 6. In the Last Supper, he has a very long teaching from chapter 13 to 17. It's five chapters in which he teaches about who the Blessed Trinity is, the power of the Holy Spirit, and what it means to be a disciple. And then we see that he mentions the disciples who reject his teaching and will betray him. And then we see that later on the uh, Judas does betray him at the Last Supper, walks out and betrays him. Uh, to, and then uh, the other apostles run away from him. And notice how it's twice that Judas's you know, betrayal is mentioned here, 
but we see it accomplished in John 18, verses 2 to 5, where it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place of Gethsemane, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, procuring a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all was to befall him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. Notice how twice it mentions the betrayal of Judas, just like it's twice here too. So these are, and that's not carelessness. St. John really wants us to see those connections. And as I mentioned, he is, Jesus our Lord is teaching this to the 12 who will be his first bishops. And, you know, it's interesting that Judas, who already didn't believe, but he didn't leave either. He stayed. That's a very odd thing to do, isn't it? Why would you stay if you don't believe? And he lost faith, but he wants to make some money out of it. He was stealing from the other apostles in the, their common purse, and he got 30 pieces of silver going for the big bucks. That was, by the way, the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. And I, a lot of people report to me, I've seen it myself, that we even have had in these years priests who lost their faith in the Eucharist. I, I've had people tell me that they, they don't really believe, in the, even though they're priests. And they don't leave. They stay. I had a, a, a teacher once who was not a Catholic, but he had been ordained a minister. He had lost his faith in God. He stayed teaching uh, in a Christian school because he, I don't know why he didn't say, could only guess. Um, this is something that we may have to consider that as part of our understanding of you know, why we had this horrible betrayal within the church with the sex abuse scandal, that we can understand it, that this is sometimes what people do. Even though they don't have faith, they don't wholly believe, they stick around because they can't do anything else sometimes or they think there's an advantage to them and they make it all about them instead of making it about Jesus and cause great harm as did Judas Iscariot. So this is something that we have to be very alert to and make sure that we examine our own lives and our own consciences and ask for that growth in the gift of faith so that we do believe what we do and practice what we believe. This will be essential. We'll come back and talk more about that, so please stay with us.
All right. First of all, before we get back to our topic, just wanted to remind you that we are going to be having our 2023 EWTN Family Celebration. That's going to be on Saturday, August 26th, right here in Birmingham, Alabama, at the Birmingham Jefferson Convention Complex, which is right where I-2965 meet. And if you are interested in joining us, the, the tickets are free, so it's a good price. But we'd love to have you come and join us. Just go to our website, EWTN.com slash Family Celebration, or you can call 1-800-447-3986. 1-800-447-3986. And you can register for this event. It's free, but we need to know who's, you know, how many people are showing up so we have enough chairs set up and stuff. So we'd love to have you join us. All right. So, um... One of the things that I also wanted to mention in regard to our uh, last, uh, last comments we were making is that, you know, we, all of us Christians, clergy and laity alike, have to take a look at our own lives and think about ourselves in light of these first disciples. You know, they um, definitely... We're sinners, and so are we. You know, as I've, uh, I always tell uh, young ladies when they're about to prepare them for marriage, getting them ready, I said, you know, you're marrying a sinner. And I turn to the guy and say, and so are you, because they don't make the other kind. You know, we're all sinners. And this is it, learning how to deal with that reality that you're going to be, you're, you are a sinner and you're in the company of sinners. That's what happened in the, with the first disciples. And this is a, a very important part uh, that is in conflict with certain elements of our culture. You know, uh, some people influenced by certain types of psychologists will say, well, you have to express what's going on inside of you. You just have to put out, it's, it's authentically you. No, that's really not a good idea. There's a lot of stuff in you that's really nasty. And I'm basing that on observing what's inside of me, as well as what I see in people around me. That there's, there's a lot of violence and anger and lots of other you know, nasty reactions that are sinful. And we have to be alert to that. Not everything that I have going on inside of me is right or righteous. And we need to have correction. So this is something that um, we seek to overcome our moral and our personal weaknesses and failures. Uh, that's why we need confession. Uh, it's another thing I always tell couples. You know, once you're married, you need to go to confession as often, if not more often. And, be, you know, the sins that you commit may be different than before you're married, but it's still things that need to be corrected. And if you don't believe me, ask your spouse. <laughs> now, for we have to, as we confront our own limitations and our own sins and such, we learn in that 
our need for Jesus Christ. That, see, some people say, oh, you're just going to be putting yourself down and making yourself bad. No, I'm already a sinner. I'm already limited. Don't play pretend games that you're able to be something that you're not. That's the basis for narcissism. And that is a madness. It's narcissistic uh, self-approval is a form of psychological disorder. It's not something to be commended. And we have an epidemic, as a matter of fact, psychologists are calling it a pandemic of narcissism. And you keep following it through, you'll move right on up towards being a sociopathic individual who can justify anything. You know, sociopaths are the group that score highest in self-esteem. <laughs> they have no doubt that they're right and everybody else is wrong. And so, sort of like two-year-olds. So this is something that we have to be alert to. But we, the point isn't to put ourselves down. The point is to recognize how much we need Jesus Christ. This is not optional. It's essential. We need time for our own prayer and meditation and self-examination, examination of conscience, and repentance for sin. That's very, very important. It's true of the apostles. It's true of us. And it's, that only can come with authentic humility that comes from seeing ourselves before God. He's the norm. And we have to see that in ourselves. And this also applies to the clergy. The clergy, as much as anybody, need to be very alert to this. Otherwise... We become Judases. We become like the apostles filled with weakness who run away from Jesus when there's trouble. This is something that we have to keep very much in mind. Now, what I'd like to do at this point is make a transition to the next chapter. We're going to be covering, in the, the, we've been looking at chapter 2 of my book, now we're going to go to chapter 3, and that is focused on the Eucharist as the fount and summit of our faith, as Vatican II says, but it also is the place of betrayal and abandonment of Jesus. It can be either one. And we see at the Last Supper that all of that is true. It is the source and foundation of our faith. It is the high point of our faith. But it's also where there can be a lot of abandonment and betrayal. And this is something that, as Catholics, we still believe that at the Eucharist, we are receiving the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, His infinite self, is present. And it's not that it, he is present in the bread. No, no, we don't believe that it's bread. We believe that the bread is completely transubstantiated into the substance of Jesus Christ. Accidents remain, but it's really Jesus' body and blood. And that this is necessary for eternal life. It's the food for eternal life to strengthen us on our way to heaven. Now, this, as I mentioned, in John 6, 
our Lord taught about the Eucharist one full year before the Last Supper. It was a full year at the Passover of the, his second year of his ministry. But then in the, the time that he was crucified was also Passover. This is something that we have always understood. That's why you see at so many Catholic altars the image of a lamb with a sword having gone through him, the lamb that was slain. That's Jesus Christ. Because St. John the Baptist said, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our new Passover, as St. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is uh, something that is uh, very, very important for us to understand. And he institutes that first Eucharist and personally celebrated it. And during it, when he says the words, do this in remembrance of me, he makes those first 12 apostles, the, the 12 apostles that are present at that first Eucharist, he makes them into his first bishops. And from them will come the rest of the priests and bishops throughout history. All of us would be who are ordained, yet if I guess today was my ordination anniversary, 47 years now. And that ordination goes back to uh, Cardinal Cody, uh, who's, and he can trace his back on down. So this is something that we all trace back. And this is where the first Eucharist comes from and is passed on to the church. And priests say the words of Jesus. We do this in memory of him, saying his words. When I celebrate Mass uh, for these last 47 years, I've, I say, this is my body. This is the cup, the chalice of my blood. That's what I, I say, because I'm acting in the person of Christ. And, you know, we pre-study a long time, as, as some one joke says, uh, yeah, a bunch of slow learners. But, it, <laughs> but it's also to test us and prepare us and train us, not only for knowing our faith and for how, learning how to teach the, uh, the morals and the, the truth of the church and scripture and all, but also to prepare us for the life of celibacy and fidelity to that. In all that, uh, we learn to pray and spend time in prayer. It's necessary. We take a vow at our ordination as deacons that we will pray for the church by saying the, the liturgy of the hours every day. This is all part of us. And this is an important preparation for us to act in the person of Christ, because as the ordination ceremony says to us, we are to be conformed to Christ. I'm not, again, Frank Sinatra is not the norm. He's not the one I'm supposed to imitate. Great voice, nice music, but I'm supposed to follow Jesus Christ and act like him. That's the way that I'm called to. And that's one of the reasons, everybody in the church knows that. And that's one of the reasons that the priest scandal was such a shock. You know, 
you may, I don't know if you are aware, the, at this point, you know, the, the percentage of priests who were involved in sca the scandals uh, were 3%. That's what it was, 3%. And today, among teachers in the public school system, it's more like 14% are abusing children. But you don't hear the same sense of outrage except from the parents and kids when they find out. But you don't have the same sense of outrage because more is expected of priests. More is expected of us because of what we're ordained to do. And it caused an even deeper sense of betrayal. It's a betrayal of Christ, betrayal of the trust by the people. That's what was at stake. And this is something that we need to work through. And that's why I have written this book, How Can We Pray Our Way Through This Scandal? By understanding Christ even in the midst of this. And that's why I want to focus in this next chapter on the Last Supper. Focus on that back and forth between Jesus Christ and his weak, sinful apostles, his first priests. We understand that and we learn to have his perspective. We want to think with Christ. We want to love with Christ. And we also want to make sure that we seek the repentance of Peter and the other ten and that we don't fall into the despair of Judas, who killed himself. This is a real issue. And I like to say that when people give up on Christ and the church because of the scandal, Satan is getting a two-for-one sale on temptation. He tempts the abusive priest or bishop, and he ca helps cause scandal for everybody else. We have to correct the behavior, and that was also a failure by many. We'll talk about that too in this context. But we have to then say, I am not going to let a fellow sinner destroy my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not going to let another sinner separate me from the body and blood of Christ and that I will seek the eternal life that Jesus Christ wants and I will do what I can to help bring you know, ongoing repentance, reform, and as one of my friends who wears a red hat that has M-A-H-A on it. A lot of people have M-A-G-A. But instead, M-A-H-A stands for Make America Holy Again. That needs to be our goal, not only for America, but for the world, and we begin with ourselves. So that's what we'll be focusing on over the next weeks. Okay? All right. I'm going to start taking some of your questions and comments. Let's start off with Lorraine, who is in the great state of New York. Lorraine? What can we yes. do for you? 
okay, I need to, I went to Catholic school. I believe in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. This is my struggle now. I need to believe that there is a real heaven. When my loved ones die, I always say they went to the Lord. I actually believe they went to our good Lord, Jesus mm -hmm. Christ. Mm -hmm. But the thought that there is a real heaven and we will be reunited again in okay. heaven. Well, here, let me ask you this, Lorraine. Yes. When you say they go to the Lord, what are they going to be doing with him? Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Yeah. And I believe that Jesus is there, of course, and that my loved ones go there. My struggle is now if I will be reunited with them and we will uh, be together. If well, the Lord takes me to heaven. Yeah, first of all, are you living your Christian life? Yes, with, only with the strength of God. I'm a poor sinner. Yeah, you, you too. Okay, so we're in that, we're in that same boat there. Um, but you're living, what makes you think that you wouldn't go to heaven to be with these folks? It's not that I don't believe that I would go to heaven, but that I would be reunited with my loved ones, that there is an actual physical place of heaven where okay. I will see my mother again and my grandmother and my grandfather. Yeah. Here's one of the things. I, I would urge you to, uh, there's just a few little things that give a clue. Have you ever read the book of Revelation? Yes, of course. Okay. And I'd like you to focus on the first uh, seven or eight chapters. And then again on chapters 19 to the end. I want you to meditate on those sections there. You see, especially, well, uh, matter of fact, even at the first chapters, chapters 4 through 10, and then 19 to 22. Take a look at those chapters, because there you see the saints in heaven, and they're all focused on the Lord. And they know what's going on here on earth, and they know what's going on in heaven. And I'd like you to ask our Lord for a gift of having as lively a sense of how wonderful heaven is. And you may also want to do this. Go to EWTN Religious Catalog. Mother Angelica, years ago, way back about 85 or 86, did a series on heaven. That is extremely useful and helpful to get that imaginative sense. Again, as Mother Angelica does so well. And those would be my recommendations. As you pray for that grace, ask our Lord to give you that, that imaginative sense. And Mother Angelica's talks, I think there are about seven or eight of them uh, that she did on heaven. And they're still available. Uh, I would look those up, okay? And ask the saints that are already up there and grandmother and all the others to pray for you so that they help pray you into the place. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back in just a couple of minutes. So please stay with us.
Thank you. Thank you. And welcome back. Um, first, I want to mention that uh, tomorrow night uh, we will be having our EWTN live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And we will speak with an author and journalist named Peggy Stanton. Uh, she'll discuss her career as the first female news correspondent for ABC TV in Washington, D.C but also about her conversion from being a cultural Catholic to a committed Catholic. Very important kind of thing, and uh, there's a lot of good background there, so we look forward to that. Let's start off with some questions right here from our studio audience. Father, where are you from? Lafayette, Louisiana. Well, you something. Yes, sir. <laughs> I, you know, Lafayette, they, they know what to do with some food down there. That's right. So, uh, so what can we do for you today? Well, Father, just with Corpus Christi this past Sunday mm -hmm. and John 6, and he's so definitive in his statement, unless you eat this flesh and drink this blood, you have no life within you. Mm -hmm. And then we know in 66 they walk away sad and he didn't mm -hmm. water it down. For all of our Protestant brothers and sisters, including my own father who's Methodist, mm -hmm. uh, how, does our, how do we rectify that reality that they're not receiving the body and blood of Jesus mm -hmm. Christ and is there a mm -hmm. life within them? Yeah, there's, there are a couple things. You know, first of all, you know, you're talking about folks who are oftentimes taught. I, I don't know if you, uh, less so among uh, Methodists, but among some of the different denominations, there is such a strong anti-Catholicism that they really believe that we are doing something superstitious, some that we're doing some sort of magic. Um, in fact, uh, you may well know, but when you see story, uh, various depictions of magicians doing sleight of hand, they'll say hocus pocus. That comes from mass. Hocus corpus meum. That's a making fun of the mass. And a lot of folks don't know that. And if you also remember the, uh, a dance that used to be done, I learned this in grammar school, the hokey pokey. That's also from hawkus corpus meum. And you know how it says you move your hand and you shake it all about? and It was making fun of how Catholics have different gestures in mass. That's where that came from. And so uh, it's a, now most folks don't know then it's just a, a dance that you teach first graders and such. So they really believe that. And if that's what they think we think, they can't become Catholic. You know, they, so one step is helping other Christians to see the biblical basis of what we do. That's one step. Secondly, 
you know, most of the same kind of evangelical people that I know who would, who would think that we're doing something that is very bad, they also believe that they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, right? This is a, this is a very deep, profound experience that they have of Christ. And I think we can begin with that. As far as, I, I, if we look at that, you know, uh, with, uh, uh, with attempting to understand, they're making a spiritual act of communion. And, you know, again, one of the things, being in the South for your whole life, you would, you may have heard this before. Well, you Catholics are having the sacrifice of the Mass every day. You're crucifying Jesus again and again. And Hebrews says he died once and for all, right? Well, if he died once and for all, how can you be washed in the blood of the Lamb? Unless that one sacrifice on the cross is made available to you today, tomorrow, and forever. And what you believe about being washed in the blood of the Lamb is what we also believe about the Eucharist, that Christ's atemporality, Christ is truly eternal, he's not in time. So his saving death, the shedding of his blood on the cross is available so that you can be washed in by the blood of the Lamb through your act of faith. But we with our faith also believe that the same wounds available to you now are what's the basis for our Holy Eucharist. And so what you have as an act, a spiritual act, is something that is also a sacramental act. So we, I would try to focus on where we share our faith in the power of Christ's death in the present moment, and then maybe open them up to seeing that this is a sacramental moment Jesus established. You're experiencing it spiritually, and I have respect for that, but I would also invite you to this sacramental moment. Does that make sense, Father? Yeah. Man, I think that that would be important. Speaking of Father, Father, where are you from? I'm from Rain, Louisiana, in the Diocese of Lafayette. I know yeah. where it is. I've been down there. Some, there have been some times I have to go through there because they have too many geese and ducks. <laughs> what can we do for you? I thought it was very interesting, the correlate you made between Judas and priests involved in the scandal mm -hmm. or people who lose their faith or quit practicing the faith, mm -hmm. particularly your thoughts about faith being a theological virtue that is a gift from God, mm -hmm. but that we still have the choice. So we have to participate in that to receive mm -hmm. it. So I think believing uh, is our reception of faith. And so many times I see people come to me, they struggle with, they're praying for family members that they raised Catholic, but they've left the faith and yep. they struggle with that. They're like, why, why would they leave the faith? Um, so I think there's a lot to unpack with you, with what you said about Judas. We think of Judas who had the best pastor ever, had just been ordained, received his first communion, you know, uh, yeah. had the best seminary formation from Christ himself, but yeah. still he chose, he had the choice and, 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 and it led him down a dark road and priests that are involved in the scandal and stuff. And, uh, and we wonder why do they stay 
in that ministry. Um, and I think possibly, maybe you could speak to this, is perhaps there's hope that lingers, there's love that lingers, and, and some part of them, mm-hmm. maybe even intellectually, um, longs for a repair of that and longs for that that faith to be restored. Yeah. Uh, and for whatever reason, whatever's going on internally with their struggle, um, that leads them away from the faith. So. Yeah. I, I think there are uh, a number of motives going on in a, in a person, um, and we, we have to be alert to that. I think you're right. Some may have a hope. Well, maybe I can find that faith. Part of the problem, and I'm going to address this in my book, sometimes, I don't know about you youngsters, but back in the 70s, uh, there were seminary professors who didn't believe in the faith and taught us not to believe. That was one of the issues. Uh, I, when I took an exam, uh, you know, an important, uh, it was an oral board exam that I had to take uh, at the, as I finished up seminary, um, one of the teachers, not a priest, uh, a nun, uh, said to me uh, in, in just shock, said, you really believe that there could be a hell? I said, well, I didn't make it up. <laughs> you know, I'm sort of going by what Jesus said there, but she was just in shock and didn't think that hell existed. Um, Others I've had who de- denied the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Others denied the virgin birth. I mean, they, they, and if you are teaching that in the seminary, um, this is, uh, you know, the, something that I think is going to affect the faith of others. And sometimes guys stay because what else can I do? Again, that was the case of a couple people I knew. So, you know, but others hope for faith. So we'll pray for them. All right, and then I have a message or an email from Guy. Uh, Dear Father Mitch, what's your opinion on why Jesus cursed the fig tree? It's the only place he caused death. Good observation, Guy. In, I, I did a paper on that passage in grad school, and I learned that among the rabbinic writings, there was this belief that when the Messiah comes, the fig trees will bend down their branches and give him their fruit. And this fig tree has nothing on it. It has no fruit. So he curses it. And then, after teaching in the temple, comes back and it's withered. This became a symbol of those who do not welcome him as the Messiah. They don't give him their fruit. They don't show him what they've got as their best. And especially after he had been teaching all day and they did not, the the people listening to him did not accept and they kept trying to trick him that the fig tree then is a symbol of those 
who kept trying to trip Jesus up and would not accept him as the Messiah. So they too would dry up. And in fact, the place where he was teaching was the temple, if you remember. And 40 years after his death, it was totally destroyed. So this is one of the things that I think is going on there. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we have to bring this to a close. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And this network is brought to you by you. That's how our Lord Jesus inspired Mother Angelica to have it keep going for these uh, more than 40 years. So we asked you to do as she asked you. Keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And then we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all and thank you.